You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 35. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we pick at the news, giving you an entertaining perspective on culture and technology. It's a podcast for inquisitive minds. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear preparedness, and bum, 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 certain death by a WMD, which is short for a uh, weapon of mass destruction. For uh, you history buffs out there, you might remember WMDs. That's really hard to say. WMDs back from 2003 in our invasion of Iraq. Thomas and I have some uh, interesting perspective on what exactly a WMD. But first, let's talk about nuclear holocaust. There was a uh, article published uh, in Nature.com the other day saying that the United States is woefully unprepared quote-unquote, woefully unprepared for a nuclear strike. And uh, I read that article, and uh, my first thought was, uh, yeah, no crap. Uh, And then my second thought was, what is truly prepared uh, for a nuclear holocaust? You know, if there's there's a nuclear holocaust, or even just an isolated nuclear strike, who is going to be the most prepared? And from my military perspective, the most prepared nation is going to be that nation that doesn't count on technology to survive. So my position, my opinion is is that uh, you know whoever survives that initial strike, uh, they're gonna have to then figure out how to survive uh, on on their own. you know they're gonna have to make their food, uh, shelter, all that kind of stuff. And people in modern day America are woefully unprepared for a nuclear strike because I doubt that a majority of Americans knows how to farm for themselves, knows how to grow the food really even knows what an edible plant is that isn't found in a grocery store. Uh, So I think, you know, beyond the initial strike, I think the most devastating aspect of a nuclear war is not necessarily the initial strike, but the mass starvation, mass hysteria that occurs afterward as our nation temporarily or even, you know, long-term temporarily is put back to a 19th, 18th century status where we pretty much have to plow horse and buggy because uh, there's no gasoline, there's no infrastructure, there's there's nothing to get us by. So I get that perspective uh, from some of the uh, third world countries I've visited. I've been to the Philippines, I've been to some uh, to Iraq, and those countries, in my opinion, are actually going to be better prepared for the aftermath of nuclear holocaust than we ever will be, simply because they still have mules donkeys, in the Philippines case, oxen that they farm with. That's their primary farm implementation. And if your animals can survive the initial nuclear attack, not necessarily the explosion, but the uh, the radiation, everything after the fact, then you actually still have a tool that you can use to farm, to eat, to grow food, like we did way back in the 19th century and the 18th century. So that's my perspective. What's your take, Thomas? So I actually read a book a couple of years ago, and I'll link to it in the show notes. The title of the book is The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm. And I think all of you owe it to yourselves and to your descendants to have a copy of this book and to hide it somewhere, (laughs) to put it into a safe and put it down in the ground. But it it was a really fascinating book because it was all about this question of how do you rebuild civilization? And this is an important conversation to have because civilization has collapsed not once but twice. There was a cataclysm that brought 
to an end all of the Bronze Age civilizations within a handful of years. And we don't really know exactly what it was. They, their writings mention the Sea Peoples and something happened and the um, Egyptian Empire collapsed, the uh, the Hittite Empire collapsed, all of these different empires in the Mediterranean Basin collapsed and they were like back to almost Stone Age technology for like hundreds of years after that before the next... Um, kind of age, the Iron Age kind of emerged um, or whatever the name of the age after that. And then we had the collapse of the Roman Empire. So in at least in Europe, uh, civilization collapsed again and people kind of went back. They didn't go all the way back to Stone Age. So we're making some progress, uh, but it took a long time. In some cases, 1500 years for architecture to regain the strength in plumbing. And, you know, the Romans had central plumbing and you know, ways of moving waste out of the city. And, you know, in some places it was 1800s before they brought that technology back, 1700s before they brought that technology back. So this is something that we should talk about. You know, Western civilization has collapsed before. It could collapse again. And how quickly we bounce back from that collapse depends on what the collapse is and uh, how prepared we are for it. And the knowledge kind of walks through the various things that could you know, cause civilization to crack. The more complicated, the more advanced your civilization is, the more fragile it is. It becomes very uh, uh, self-repairing. Uh, so a good example of this is Japan had two cataclysms at the same time. They had an earthquake and a tsunami and a nuclear uh, meltdown, actually. So three, uh, the nuclear meltdown was a result of the earthquake and the tsunami. And they were able to bounce back pretty quickly because civilization worked and, you know, Toyota's factories were all down, but then Toyota factories all got back together. And uh, that was encouraging to see. But at some point you get to where civilization isn't able to repair itself and it's so harmed uh, that it can't uh, bounce back. And one of the things that can do that is a nuclear bomb. Another is a plague. That's historically what happened. Uh, Rome had a terrible series of plagues that depopulated the city and made it hard to fight off the barbarians because when half your population has died from plague and the barbarians who live out in the hinterlands and aren't getting plague as bad because they're not living on top of each other uh, aren't uh, having their populations die off. It makes it really hard to uh, win those wars to keep uh, Rome from getting sacked. <laughs> so um, I when it, this article of like, oh, America is not prepared, I will say some of America is not prepared. City people, it's not going to be great for city people. But for folks living out in the country, I think they could very easily become hunter-gatherers. I think fundamental understanding of farming still exists. And I think that we'll be able to bounce back uh, just with a much smaller population if it does come to that. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll build a series of vaults and people can emerge from the vaults and slowly save the wasteland. <laughs> I think I read that book once. Um there is an actual a really great fictional. I'm going to have to go back because I can't remember what the title is. I want to say it's called The Silo or Silo or something like that. Really, really great, well-written uh, fiction articles about people who live in these big silos for hundreds of years trying to outlast a, uh, a cataclysm. There's a series of video games too, Fallout, which is based off of that premise of people emerging after hundreds of years living in vaults underground to reclaim the earth as the radiation dies down. Oh, that sounds like a sounds like a lovely time. So you said something <laughs> about um, Japan coming back from a disaster. And I'm going to hand it to the Japanese. They did do a phenomenal job. 
Um, having been to Japan and having gone through a natural disaster in the form of a typhoon uh, on the island of Okinawa when I was uh, when I was stationed there uh, as a marine, what I will tell you is Japanese society. They're very structured, very rule-following, law-abiding society makes them especially adept to to getting over those types of things. So as an example, I mean, we I went through a what's a, a equivalent of a Category 5 uh, hurricane, which is a typhoon over in the Pacific, uh, when I was on the island. And we're all on lockdown, and, you know, there's a bunch of uh, wind and everything. And I look out my window at one point, and I see this minivan like doing end over end blowing down through the parking lot. So the winds were so strong. It was blowing cars down the parking lot. Like they were little toys. So it was, it was not a small storm. It wasn't, it was, uh, it was, I'm going to channel my teenage son here. It was an epic storm. It was pretty awesome. And once that storm had passed, you know, it wasn't like a new Orleans where things were turned off for weeks, months, years, it was uh, it was about four six hours while the street crews cleaned up the streets and then it was back to business as usual. Couple reasons for that: one, their infrastructure over in Okinawa is designed because they they go through two three typhoons a year, so it's just not a thing. Their their infrastructure their their buildings are made out of cement. Um, they're ready for it, just like people in northern states are ready for the blizzards and the snow. They just know what's going to happen. And uh, their society is stratified to the point where the, everybody has a role. They know what their role is. They know what they're supposed to do. And they don't have the cowboy American culture. Now, I think there's a lot of great things about America. And our quote-unquote cowboy culture in America, rugged individualism in a lot of ways, is is great. Um, it lends itself to risk taking. It lends itself to these incredible inventions. Um, you know, people go out and you know they they invent Nike shoes. They invent computers. They it's it's all this part of uh, I can rugged individualism of the United States of America. I can do it because I'm awesome and I know I can. That also can hinder us uh, in the terms. Uh, if you have ever seen a riot, you know how devastating mobs can be. And the problem with rugged individualism in America is we have a tendency to be clannish and to be mobbish. And so in a natural disaster, in a natural disaster, whether a natural disaster or nuclear holocaust, what have you, I think the big danger, the immediate danger to the American people is just going to be... Um, yeah, just that that mass chaos, mass hysteria, because our culture, our society, is not regimented and not uh, is, is is not as stratified to handle things like that. So I so think I, I want to push back. I want to push oh, back on that. A oh, little push bit. back. Go ahead. Yeah, because I I have an example, and I think you're. Before you push back, let me let me let me finish off this thought. I think Katrina, in terms of natural disasters. I think that is more uh, the rule, especially when cities are concerned, than it is the exception. I think that's pretty much how Americans handle natural disasters. Wait for it to come. Wait for the big uh, the, the storm. And then we clean up the mess afterwards. And it's a lengthy process. But, Thomas, tell me what you think. Okay. So, we have Katrina in New Orleans. And we have Harvey a few years later in Houston. Which of those cities would you say has more of the cowboy 
culture. You have New Orleans where a lot of people are wanting to be dependent on the government. That I would say that's more of the culture there. It's not to say it's not also in Houston. But in Houston, people take matters into their own hands. And if their neighbor is stuck in their house, they get out their fishing boat and they put on their cowboy hat and they go and they pluck their neighbor out of their house. And you had hundreds and thousands of people rescued from their homes, not by the government, not from a stratified society, but by normal people taking matters into their own hands and helping out their neighbors. And their identity uh, didn't keep them from doing that. You saw people of all races helping each other. And Houston's one of the most diverse cities in the nation, maybe the most diverse city in the nation. And Houstonians are used to their identity as a Houstonite or Houstonian, their identity as a Texan, and and perhaps even their identity as an American superseding their other identities to the degree that, hey, if somebody's in help, I'm going to, or in need of help, I'm going to help you out regardless of the color of your skin or your uh, country of origin. And Houston's kind of a microcosm of the whole planet. There are colonies there from almost every country. You'll find a neighborhood uh, from that country, people speaking that language in Houston. It's a really remarkable city and yet fully into that cowboy culture. You know, they put their cowboy hats on there. They're independent. They don't like the government telling them what they can and can't do with their land. They have uh, no zoning laws, which I think is just magically amazing. And it's um, it, it's beautiful. And I think that it's a perfect example of how both systems can work. So you have Japan's system definitely works, right? Discipline, order, control. Everyone has a place and every place has a person and they're able to bounce back. But we're here, you know, we just passed the one year anniversary of Harvey and Houston's bounced back. It, sure, there's still some cleanup that needs to happen and uh, still some damage, but, you know, people rolled up their sleeves and they cleaned up the mess themselves and they didn't wait on the government to come and do that for them. And I think that there's a really special beauty in that. And that I think is what makes us special as Texans and different as Americans from that kind of more Eastern mindset. So a couple points there. A, I don't want listeners to think that, you know, I'm uh, anti-American. Farthest thing from the truth. I think they need to uh, understand my opinions based on what I've witnessed uh, firsthand being in my international travels and also my experience as a police officer. Um, So, yes, people did come together uh, after Harvey. They did some amazing things, newsworthy things that you saw in the news, people going down there with fishing boats, doing incredible Samaritan type of stuff. However, my question, and I really don't know the answer to this question, it was, is that more of the newsworthy, noteworthy exception, or was it the rule? I really, I wasn't there. I don't know the answer to that question. Yes, people can come together, and Americans are amazing about coming together sometimes. And then there's other times where they will absolutely eat each other up, uh, like they did in Katrina and um, in Ferguson and in other places. So, you know, which way the tide's going to roll, I don't know. Um and I guarantee you that there's some uh, also some negative stories in Houston that uh, you know we either forgot or didn't hear about or what have you. So I didn't want to get too much into the point of comparing cultures, comparing societies, which one's better, which one's worse, because the rugged individualism for the sake of public record, I very much believe in. I don't want to be in a stratified society. I don't want government telling me what to do. But just to be intellectually honest, I have to say there's times where that actually comes back to bite us in the butt. And that's just one of the times. And um, there's times where having a stratified society is beneficial. And uh, in a natural disaster like Japan has, that's one of the times. If I had to choose one or the other, I'll choose our culture any day of the month and twice on Sunday. 
but uh America. Okay, so as we were talking about what countries are prepared for uh, the bomb, uh, there's two countries that I think are better prepared than the United States and for entirely different reasons. And the first is New Zealand. They have no nuclear weapons. They don't allow American nuclear anything to dock in their ports and their whole pitch to the world. And they do this kind of quietly. And I'm sorry if I'm kind of blowing their uh, whistle a little bit. But their whole thing is don't nuke us. We're not going to nuke you. Let us be the time capsule, the rebuilding of the human race. (laughs) We will uh, continue to exist. And they're an island full of sheep. And if there's one thing uh, that's easier than farming, it's ran Ranching. And so uh, humans were ranching and, and raising um, livestock long before we figured out advanced farming techniques. So New Zealand is well situated to survive uh, the fallout. And yeah, it would be difficult if they don't get all of their shipments coming in. But I feel like uh, as long as no bombs landed in New Zealand, they would be the ones repopulating the world with, uh, with the New Zealanders. Uh, the other country is Switzerland. Switzerland knows that they, they're trying to be neutral like New Zealand. Uh, but the problem that Switzerland has is that they're holding all the world's wealth. So they, there's a huge incentive to take out Switzerland or to go to Switzerland. And they have supposedly built enough nuclear fallout shelters for the entire population of Switzerland or up to 80% of the population of Switzerland could fill, uh, could live in bunkers. Apparently, some of the Alps are hollowed out and have been turned into bunkers that people can live in. And um, that's their way of surviving. Now, as people emerge from those bunkers, there's still the question of, you know, how do we make food in this new poisoned world? Uh, but again, with all of their valleys, and the I imagine radiation would be focused to whatever valley the bomb went off in. And they would have some valleys that weren't worth nuking. Uh, that they could grow their food. So in terms of countries that are prepared for the bomb, if I were putting money, I would put money on Switzerland and I would put money on New Zealand uh, for using entirely different strategies. America's strategy of if you nuke us, we will make you cease to exist is really great until it's not. (laughs) So uh, our strategy is, is a little bit different. So two answers to that. And uh, one is in terms of the poisoned afterworld, if you look at Chernobyl and the area surrounding Chernobyl as a case study, it's really interesting. They've actually done uh, uh, quite a few articles about this. I'll have to go find one of the articles that I read. I think it was National Geo um, about the how nature has taken back this area. And scientists go in there and uh, they measure the, the, the toxin levels in these animals. And they have extremely elevated toxin levels, yet still... The wolf packs have come back. The um, And I can't remember what species of deer uh, antelope they have over there. But the wildlife has come back in a major, major way. I think even bear has come back. So, uh, and they, you know, I haven't... They, they took pictures of these animals and they, they put them in National Geo. And it's not like these animals are freaks where they have four eyes and, and eight legs or anything like that. It's a regular looking wolf. And I'm sure, you know, they've, they went through, the, the species went through several um, generations of being messed up before they found a, an evolutionary crease in there where, you know, this specific uh, you know, line of wolf was able to survive these high cesium levels. So I think that life is an amazing, an amazing thing and that it'll find a way to survive. So that that's my point on the, the long-term view of the poisoned uh, after nuclear world. Uh, going to your point about uh, New Zealand, 
Uh, I think they made a movie about that. Actually, they made a series of movies, and it wasn't New Zealand; it was Australia. Um, and you know, it was it was kind of a dystopia, but uh, Mad Max did survive in the end. So I think we can look to that <laughs> as as a guidebook uh, for the future. And uh, Switzerland is uh, has always been prepared to defend itself. It's always been well defended because it's a country surrounded by the Alps. And you're right about it being uh, you know the world's uh, piggy bank. So. They do have a lot of incentive uh, incentive to a not be bombed, and then they are very good at surviving, as they have been for thousands of years. So yeah, I you know I, I like your point about New Zealand and Swi- uh, Switzerland, and I will also put you know I will put a good word out there for like I said earlier, any nation that can survive, that can farm, uh, that can ranch without the use of of technology. Uh, and I'll even go so far to say as uh, North Korea is actually, if it's not the recipient of all of our nuclear hate, if uh, for some outside chance, you know, they didn't get bombed at all for some reason, uh, they're actually in pretty good position to survive because uh, correction, they're... it's so bad there, bombs wouldn't make it any worse. <laughs> And that was kind of my whole point. Everybody's starving anyway. Everybody is a subsistence farmer. It's not like things are going to change a whole lot. So as long as they don't take a direct hit, North Korea, shockingly, could be okay. (laughs) Now, I I would like to, going back to the bomb, because we've been talking about like the collapse of civilization and what can cause collapses of civilization. I would like to enter an official rant into the annals of official Liberty Buzzard Rants, and this is on the term "weapon of mass destruction." I hate the word "weapon of mass destruction" because we we've been talking about like how could the United States survive a nuclear blast, right? Because nuclear bombs not only do they have this huge heat wave that blows up buildings and they destroy lots of people immediately, but there's also this radioactive fallout that can kill people hundreds of miles away and and cause cancer, and it poisons the land so that the land becomes not just unfarmable, but unlivable, sometimes for decades or even for centuries. A nuclear bomb is really, really terrible. And the term weapon of mass destruction includes nuclear bombs, and it also includes chemical bombs and biological weapons. These are not like each other. Biological is even worse, potentially. You create some super virus, you create bubonic plague 2.0, and not only does it destroy the city that you're targeting, but potentially it spreads you know, through our airport system throughout the whole planet. And we could see the entire population of the planet collapse. That is really destructive. Less destructive to the land, you know, per se. You're, you're not poisoning cities and you're not destroying buildings. There's lots of stuff laying around for the survivors to use and recover from, like we recovered from the bubonic plague. But still really terrible, like really awful. Like we do not want this to happen. We have a like huge motivation to make sure that no biological weapon is ever used in any war ever. Right? It's just not worth it. Even if you won the battle, you know, it doesn't matter if half your po- if the you know, disease blows back on your population and half of everybody dies. And then we have chemical weapons. And everyone's like, oh, gosh, chemical weapons are a weapon of mass destruction. They may be, they must be just as bad as biological weapons and just as bad as, as uh, nuclear weapons. False. So false. Chemical weapons are more like 
traditional explosives like dynamite or C4 and how dangerous they are. In fact, sometimes those traditional bombs are more deadly than chemical weapons, which is why you don't see terrorists using chemical weapons. And when you do see terrorists use uh, chemical weapons, sometimes it doesn't make the news. Why? Because they didn't kill anybody. There was this cult in Japan uh, that was intent on using chemical weapons to kill people. And the first time they sent off the bomb, a few people got sick and one or two people died, but no one even realized it was a chemical weapon. And then they did it again, the famous SARN attack in Japan, I think it was Tokyo. And they killed, I think, 100 people. And it was, I think, the biggest chemical weapon kill in you know decades and, and very, very terrible. But the result was if they have used in that same subway a traditional explosive on that train that's moving at super high speed, they potentially could have killed the same number of people. And the problem with chemical weapons is that you have to have a lethal dose and equilibrium, the force of nature, air, works as hard as possible to dilute chemical weapons quickly so that there is not a lethal dose. You had Saddam Hussein was shelling Israel for days, if not weeks, with chemical weapons. Everyone just put on gas masks and hardly anyone died. The, the biggest... Um, Death was like one bomb got through and hit, I think, a barracks of soldiers and like 100 people died. But again, we're talking hundreds of people and no long term damage to the land and nothing that spreads from person to person. And when we lump chemical weapons in with nuclear weapons and biological weapons, it causes us to be far more afraid of chemical weapons than we should which, I don't know, might cause us to invade countries that we are overly afraid of. <laughs> because the problem with the chemical weapons, you need a lot of that chemical to be worth it. When you see chemical weapons being used effectively, like in World War I, you have artillery as a delivery mechanism because you need a lot of chemical and a little bit of space to keep the air from dispersing it. And uh, if you don't, once you have artillery, like in the ability to shoot artillery, you can shoot traditional bombs that may be just as dangerous. Uh, the reason we use chemical weapons is not just because we have conventions uh, saying not to use them, but also because they're not that useful. Once people put on gas masks, suddenly your chemical weapon isn't nearly as effective as a traditional bomb. So anyway, end of rant. <laughs> but I, I do think that we are far too afraid of chemical weapons and we should stop using the term weapon of mass destruction because it lumps unlike things into a category that makes them feel alike. I think you feel better after that rant, Thomas, but... <laughs> I want to know your thoughts because you were in Iraq. Like for me, this is the theo uh, theoretical thing, but you were actually sitting in bunkers in Iraq as a result of us trying to get rid of chemical weapons in Iraq. So, what are your thoughts? So, uh, what I will say is, um, I was I was a young man in Iraq, you know, early twenties, and uh, what I can tell you, you know, in the decade plus since I have been to Iraq, is I've come to realize that our invasion of Iraq. Um, it was a PR coup because uh, in the frame of reference of a weapons of mass destruction, you hit the nail on the head, Thomas, you know, a WMD in this, uh, in the sense that we, that we think of them now, you know, the, 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 the exotic weapons, the biological weapons, the chemical weapons, um, they, they're only more deadly in our minds because, um, because they sound scary, because the, the idea of somebody putting an invisible gas that we can't see out there and everybody strangling to death uh, and, and choking on their own vomit is just, it's a really scary idea. And it's newsworthy. Dying in a fiery explosion, uh, really, I'm sorry to say, isn't newsworthy. Just as stinking deadly, not as newsworthy 
uh, unless you get a lot of people. So, I mean, if you want to think about it in terms of sheer numbers, a weapon of mass destruction, sheer numbers, I guess you consider a jumbo jet a weapon of mass destruction, depending on its use. You know, there's a there is a uh, a point of law in the penal code in here in the state of Texas that says. Um, an object is considered a weapon depending on the manner of its use. So a baseball bat can be either a fun sporting item or it can be a weapon depending on its manner of use. So, uh, yeah, so anything can be a weapon of mass destruction depending on its manner of use. A truck full of nitrate fertilizer like that was used in Oklahoma City killed a lot of people. One devastating explosion killed a lot of people. That's a weapon of mass destruction. A nuclear bomb is probably a, in any sense that it's used, is probably a weapon of mass destruction. A jumbo jet flown into Twin Towers, weapons of mass destruction. So a weapon of mass destruction, purely by definition, is something that with one detonation, you can achieve the effects as, uh, the same effects as multiple conventional detonations. And I think the idea really comes from uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 1945, uh, well, we were planning and we had already started the firebombing of of uh, the main islands of Japan to and you know they built their houses back at that time of, of paper, essentially, um, to devastating effect. The problem was, is we had to use a lot of planes and a lot of explosives to achieve that carpet firebombing effect, whereas we could have one uh, nuclear weapon to achieve that same effect. So that's really the, where the weapon of mass destruction, that that I that mental framework comes from one bomb achieving the same effect as uh, uh, multiple conventional munitions. So, you know, your rant, I think, as far as chemical munitions, biological munitions, you know, being dead one way versus being dead another way, is it really matter? You're both dead at the end. Uh, I, you know, should we get our panties in a collective wad over a quote-unquote moments of mass destruction? Not necessarily. What I think we should really be concerned about is... Uh, the use of any material out there that could be uh, that could be used against us and achieve a great effect, uh, like a jumbo jet or like a truck full of fertilizer. The stuff that we haven't considered, the stuff that we don't know about, the uh, the quote unknown unknowns, those are probably scarier to me than any chemical, biological, or any conventional munition out there. Yeah. And it, what we're afraid of really affects who we are. And I think in general, less fear helps you make more rational decisions. And making decisions out of fear, I think, is always a, a bad idea. And that's why the WDs were, it was a PR coup because, you know, they, the, uh, you know, and, and the media played right into it as they always do because anything that gets clicks there, you know, back then, any, anything that gets views is going to be played over and over and over again because that's how they sell advertisements. So, you get this sense that, uh, you know, these chemical weapons, these biological weapons are more scary than conventional munitions because the idea of their death is more scary. So, you know, the WMD that you were ranting about, it's nothing more than it's just a PR thing. I mean, when you need hundreds of gallons of the thing to be effective in a small area, no one was asking the question, how... So let's assume Iraq had chemical weapons. No one was asking the question, how are they going to get them here from there? Like, when they were launching chemical weapons into Israel, they were doing it on rockets. Uh, but those rockets 
you know, they may be able to go a few hundred miles, but they're not going to be able to go, you know, around the planet. That's that is really complicated. If you're able to send a rocket around the planet, you're able to also send stuff to space. And that's why countries often make a lot of noise about their space programs, because it's a great demonstration of the power and sophistication of their rockets. But even so, if you fill to filled an intercontinental ballistic missile with a chemical weapon, you'd probably be better off filling that same missile with C4, like a traditional explosive, uh, would probably be more effective uh, than filling it with a chemical weapon. At least that's my opinion. Uh, We do want to hear what you think. Uh, Oh, real quick, uh, before we close, I want to say we have a Facebook page now. We are on Twitter and we are on YouTube. (laughs) So you can listen to these videos on YouTube. You can listen to them on Facebook and you can tweet at us. In fact, uh, I'll say that's where we want to hear what you think. Send a tweet to at Liberty Buzzard. What do you think? Are we totally off base with weapons of mass destruction? Do you think America can survive the bomb? Send us a tweet. We want to hear uh, your thoughts. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com.